Well, it happens every year, doesn't it? We come back from our summer holidays determined to do better and to be better at things we let slack the year before. But better is not always best in a world awash with words like elite and premium and superior. So says sociolinguist Crispin Thurlow. He's a professor of language and communication at the University of Bern. We are constantly pushed to take things to the next level when instead, he says, embracing mediocrity. And having the courage to be ordinary may actually be the path to contentment. His work on linguistics will bring him to New Zealand in June, but he joins me now from South Africa. Hello, Crispin. Hello, Jesse. Very, very nice to be here. And I should say we're quite lucky to have you from South Africa. New Zealanders might not realise that the uh, the infrastructure is pretty patchy in that country at the moment. It was touch and go whether you would even have electricity to make this call. Yeah, it's a it's a tremendous problem here in South Africa with the big monopolized power company needing to turn off the electricity from time to time. And I mean, it's something people who are privileged with solar panels and backup generators are fine with dealing with. But for many, many much poorer people, it's it's a complete uh, mess in their lives, basically. But it's 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 a complicated place. Well, thank you for making the time uh, and effort today to join us. And, and can you explain what it is that you do? What is a sociolinguist? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I suppose probably the easiest way to describe it is I'm interested in not so much in grammar and the sort of theoretical structures of language, but I'm interested in how words work and you know how they work in the world, what people do with language um, in their everyday lives. Um, yeah, I'm actually a lot of the work I'm, I do is interested in the way people actually use language in their everyday lives. Yeah, and, and one of the points you make is that words are real. They are real things. Language is real. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. I think we often we often think about language reflecting the world around us as opposed to thinking about it as being quite a significant way that we um, are taught how the world is and how it works and how that sort of shapes the ways we think. And we're often, we often don't notice some of the ways that it's shaping our ways of thinking um, until it's called out to us. What got you thinking about the use and the overuse of words like elite and premium? Well, I've been doing quite a lot of work over a number of years. Um, I've become increasingly interested in language and social class, which is a sort of bread and butter consideration for many sociolinguists, mm. um, but kind of went out of favor for a while. And it's making a bit of a comeback, people beginning to sort of think about well, what is the relationship between language and the way people think about social status and, uh, and class generally, because I think a lot of us have been persuaded to think that we live in classless societies, which is just obviously not the case. And I think we, we know that after the 2008 economic crisis and then followed shortly by pandemic, we realized that it's, it's not at all that simple. So I started to kind of rethink about the way class works and particularly interested in the way privilege and um, distinction and, and elite status are created and the, what's the role of language in that. And it's that that got me sort of thinking about these, what we would call floating signifiers, these little one word messages that move around all over the place. Um, and they're kind of everywhere um, all of the time. And if you just stop for a moment, you begin to notice them. You learned a bit of a lesson from your 14 year old son, I think, um, with his expectations <laughs> of a certain hotel. 
That's right. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, this was a, this is, I mean, he's now 20, but um, so this was some time ago, but I doing this work on class. Um, I was invited to a talk in Stockholm um, to talk about this stuff. And I think the colleagues there thought it was kind of a, a little bit of a tongue in cheek uh, mm. fun to put me in a hotel which belongs to a big chain of hotels called Elite Hotels. <laughs> and my, ki my kids had kind of known that I was doing this stuff and they were sort of, they were intrigued. What would this Elite Hotel be like? They came with me because it was the school holidays. And um, we arrived in this hotel and the kids were sort of really intrigued. They saw the big sign, Elite Hotels. And we went upstairs eventually after checking in and we op opened the door, walk in, and my son immediately just says, but this isn't Elite. <laughs> I'm like, oh, Okay can you maybe just tell me what you mean? And he said, well, it's just not big enough. And I was just intrigued by this. I thought this 14 year old kid who's already got some idea of what he thinks elite is and what it isn't or what eliteness looks like and how it's kind of something to do with space. But also what I think was intriguing was that he was, was having this lesson in, yeah, don't, you can't know what's really going on just because the word elite is tied to the hotel front or the, on the flag at the front. And it's a bit of a language game that's being played. Yeah, and once you start noticing words like elite, do you see them everywhere? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's been one of the fun things doing this work is calling it out to people. I think people don't notice. I think a lot of the time, you know, we don't notice these things. And then as a sociolinguist, I began to just track it and the word elite and then the word premium as well. And you begin to see it everywhere on pickles and condoms and i mean it's just you know it's it's and i mean people are always amused when they when when they get it pointed out to them but of course i always finish giving a talk about this kind of stuff and say look i promise you after today you're going to start seeing it and people send in their email saying look i found this picture look elite bread or elite tissues or and it's and so the question of course is you know yeah i think this is just what marketers do right i mean they they try to sell things up and they try to make it fancy and it just got me thinking what does it mean when, when if so many things around us are claiming to be elite? What, what, what does that tell us about the world that we live in, that there's this presumably quite successful marketing strategy that appeals to a sense of eliteness all the time? Um, and what, what are we learning about the, what status is all about and what kind of status we should be aspiring to? I, and I felt like it was on its own as a, as a one-off occurrence, the word elite is not that interesting but when you begin to realize that it's it's everywhere and i mean i have examples from all around the world on all sorts of products and services and you think okay now now this is interesting so what is happening and another word like that is premium of course premium coffee yeah. and premium chips and, and premium chocolates um and and so as you say that's one thing it's a sales pitch it's a, it's a marketing pitch but what are the wider implications you talk about how words like elite or premium or excellence can lead to a kind of status mm, anxiety. Mm. Can you, can you explain that? Yeah. So this is really, I mean, this is, it's, it's an argument I make. And I think, um, I think it seems to resonate with people when it, I think we, we live in a world where we're constantly being told that everyone should, we want to be, everyone should be a leader. Everyone should be a winner. Everyone should be seeking excellence. And in a way it's this, what I call this relentless language of superiority um, and comparison. We're constantly being told that we should be wanting to be better and also to want more at the same time. And I think this is what intrigues me is, and a premium is particularly interesting to me because I think it's, 
it's not about being the best. It is just about having a bit, something a little bit better and preferably something better than other people have got. And it sort of just occurred to me that what kind of message is that for us? I mean, and what is that, what does that do to us that we, and, if, and premium, I think, is even more common than elite, actually. I think this really is everywhere. I've actually got one of my favorite examples is some premium tomatoes from uh, New Zealand that I saw in a, in a grocery store in Auckland mm-hmm. some years ago. And, and it's everything and everywhere. And I'm like, so what does it mean then when, when we are being taught to be always looking for something a little bit better and we're prepared to pay money for it? That's part of the game that marketers play is that if something is sold to us as premium, we're persuaded, oh, well, it must be better. So it works for them as a sort of profit generator. And I get that. But I'm more interested as a sociolinguist in what is this relentless messaging about being better and wanting something better than everybody else? What is that? Where does that leave us as, as a kind of almost like as a psychological impact, as it were? We have heirloom tomatoes as well, though that one doesn't seem to have crossed over into ordinary life. You don't go to the heirloom hotel, <laughs> do you, or take an heirloom uh, uh, seat on an airline? Although it's it's in a way it's part of the same sort of language game of, <laughs> of um, just constantly. I mean, obviously, all, all of marketing hinges on distinction and everything. You want to make your product look distinct from someone else's, um, and in that sense, it's completely banal and uninteresting. But I think it's these words that really do um, make these claims to superiority and social comparison that, for me, just are doing a different kind of work in the world. I'm talking to Professor Crispin Thurlow from the University of Bern. He's a sociolinguist, and we're talking about the impact of the increased use of words like elite and premium. Uh, luxury is probably another one. And you actually mm-hmm. you performed a TED Talk called Why You Should Embrace Mediocrity, and that seems to have struck a nerve. Why do you think that is? Mm. Okay, so I, I want to quickly say that um, the title was initially um, "Embracing Mediocrity?" Question mark because this is a real this is a real trigger for people. And it was when I first started sort of thinking about this, I talked to a couple of family members, and they were appalled. They were like, "You can't you can't go out there promoting mediocrity." And these are I come from a family of teachers, and they're like, "This is a terrible message." And I'm like, "No, no, no, come on, just give me a moment." But it was the TED people who decided to really ramp up of the course. provocation by, yeah. by giving it this, you know, you know, not just maybe do it, but go and do it. I think that it is a provocation, though. It's a bit of a sort of tease because, of course, you know, mediocrity is, has got a really bad connotation for us. And I, but I started just to think about, well, why does being in the middle, which is what mediocrity really means, or why does being average um, resonate so negatively for people? And I mean, a simple point that I make in the TED talk is, you know, by the law of averages, most of us have to be average. Um, so where do we, you know, where does that leave us um, in terms of just having to recognize that we can't all be leaders, we can't mm-hmm. all be winners, we can't all be the best. And so what, do, what, what happens then if, we, if we're left with this sort of equally relentless sense of dissatisfaction or unease? And that's the status anxiety thing of, feeling very anxious about these things because we're not able to all live up to this. So people who bristle at the idea of being mediocre, are they perhaps just misunderstanding what it is or at least how you mean that word? Well, I mean, look, I mean, as a, as a sociolinguist, I know that I don't control the meaning of words and nor do dictionaries. So I can, I can tell people that the sort of, you know, 
origins of the word <laughs> mediocrity is are just about being in the middle. But of course, it's language has a life of its own. And mediocrity, I can't pretend like mediocrity doesn't have this connotation, this meaning of being sort of second second rate and or not very good quality um, and no one i'm not suggesting to anybody that that's what we're seeking to be and I, it's just you know as someone raising kids i guess i think about i don't want it's not that i don't want my kids to to do their best but i want to be honest with them about it doesn't matter to me if they are the best as long as they're doing their best and for me there's a big important distinction there um and so I think that's what that's been some of the pushback I've had from people is saying, well, you shouldn't be encouraging people to be mediocre. And I also accusing me of being very privileged for suggesting this, especially as someone who's giving a TED talk. You're like, oh, it's all right for you. You've, you know, you're clearly perfectly, <laughs> you know, you're, you're clearly not mediocre yourself. I'm like, no, well, that's not the point. And actually the TED talk was not something I set out to find or to do. It just came to me. But it was still, I think we all of us are struggling with how do we how do we ourselves live in ways that are doing our best but also learning to be content and especially content in in contented in the face of rejection or failure or criticism um and not being the best at something it's it, not being good is actually an okay thing to be yeah it, and it's so obvious it almost doesn't it's not worth saying but um Instagram doesn't help right uh, and TikTok and yeah. the and the, the rising to the top of people who are genetically gifted or or you know by definition are different um to the rest of us that really works against the idea of or at least our mm. attempts to think of the middle as a good place right yeah no look i i think it's a uh, i mean you know, raising kids, um, I think it's really challenging at the moment to find ways to get your kids to navigate a path through all of this messaging. I think we all of us are susceptible to it. But yes, I think what, what's hard to um, remember is that what we see is only ever the tip of the iceberg. And of course, in social media, like so much, like like on movies and films on, on TV, we're just seeing a, a tiny little snippet and usually the most positive favorable snippet of people's lives and i think that's the hard thing i think kids can kind of very easily like most of us get tricked and not tricked yeah but yeah persuaded into thinking that everyone's living like this and you're like no they're not living like this it's it's an illusion because you're just seeing a tiny tiny slice of it huh and how about you, Crispin? Aside from your glittering academic career and the fact that you get flying around the world, <laughs> put up for free in the hotel elites in Switzerland, <laughs> ha have you found the courage to be ordinary in other areas of your life? Do you know what? I, I think as an academic, I live in a, I work in a business and I live daily with um, a constant sense of comparison. Um, there's this idea <laughs> of you've always got something better that you could write. You've always got a better book that you could write, or you have only written one book. Why haven't you written two books? So I think as an academic, um, I mean, we're not the only industry that works like this. We are daily living with this status anxiety. So when I write about these things and I talk about them, I'm not telling other people what to do as much as I'm just sharing with people how I'm trying to figure out how do I stop 
being so anxious about not necessarily being the best or not being constantly discontented with what is already maybe quite good and okay. <laughs> and I think it's about contentment. And I think we have this idea of um, of, cont- of to be, to being contented just means kind of being lazy or just settling. And I'm not so sure it's that easy. And I think um, being contented and to content oneself, to, to turn it into a verb and something that one does for oneself, to content myself with good rather than perfect um, and with okay and with average is is hard work. It takes work. So I don't know. I can't give you a concrete example of it, but I'm I'm still trying. <laughs> we should mention, I don't think his name's come up yet, um, Alain de Botton, who, who wrote a book called Status Anxiety. Yes. be very interested to uh, yeah. hear how he feels the world's changed in the 20 years since that came out. But he, he makes the point that just to mm. take the world of academia you know, if you're an associate professor dreaming of joining the leagues of the professors, when you finally mm-hmm. get promoted, in fact, you just find another class of people to compare yourself to, <laughs> to, and, and suddenly yeah. you have a new peer group and, and, and a new level of colleague, um, and you start looking at what the next thing is to try and, uh, well, you probably compare yourself to the, the highest performing professor and, and, and never truly find happiness in what you've achieved so far. Well, exactly. And I think you're always, there's always a, a, a more fancy university that you could be teaching in, just as, just as anyone working in, in the corporate world will. There's always a better company to work mm. with. There's a more prestigious company. There's, you know, <clears throat> top five law firms, top five accounting firms. And I think the same with academia. It's just the same. I mean, we're, there's always a better university or there's a more prestigious person around the corner from you. And some way along the line, you just end up yeah, just in a state of constant restlessness and dissatisfaction. And I think it's just about each person maybe trying a little harder to figure out when is enough enough and when at what point am I going to be satisfied with what I'm doing? And actually, instead of looking for more and better, just finding pleasure in the, what, the things that you do have and the things that you are doing. There'll be people listening who, who, who are thinking, well, that's me. I've got a simple life and a and a simple yep. house I love, and each day I walk on the beach or tend to my garden, and and I'm not looking at people on TV or on the internet and thinking I wish I had that. They've already got it sussed. Oh, and I envy them. I think it's great. <laughs> I think, but I do think there's something in the zeitgeist right now about in the sort of the the energy in the world around us where. I think we are actually, I think what happens with my TED talk is it's kind of just released at the end of a year, the beginning of a new year. And I think part of what it's done is resonate with people because these are moments where we kind of want to do a reset and a rethink and a reprioritizing. And I think some people have got there. I think people, a lot of people are just realizing that we can't just keep up with this pace. It's not making us necessarily happier. Um, And I think after COVID and pandemic, I think that was a real... Um, eye-opener for a lot of us was when we were forced to slow down there's been a huge kind of global rethinking in some ways and my worry is that we're just going to ramp it up again and end up just back to where we were and I, I think a lot of people have learned a lesson that they are carrying out of pandemic and into their lives in ways that I think are probably really healthy and um, very positive. You're coming to New Zealand in June for a conference what will you be doing here and, and what will you be talking about? 
Ah, well, this is a whole new direction. Um, this is all about waste. Um, and one of the things I'm really interested in, I'm working on a big project at the moment funded by the Swiss National Science Foundation on thinking about what's the role of language in waste, the way that we, what do we, what do we name waste, what do we not name waste, what do we keep and what do we declare as waste, and all of the ways that people talk about what is waste, when is something wasteful, what's a waste of time, for example. And I think the waste stuff actually kind of in a way comes out of the work that I've been doing because the the work on elitism and elite status is very much about consumption and not just consumption of stuff, but a lot of that. And I think it naturally kind of took me to thinking about, well, what's the, what's the other end of that process? You know, all the stuff we buy because we're constantly wanting more and wanting to be better and thinking we're going to be better because we've got more stuff. Um, and that ends up having to go somewhere eventually. And so I think that's where the waste stuff comes. So there's a conference at, uh, in Wellington, which I'm coming to be, give a, give a workshop to PhD students thinking about turning, how language scholars, you know, might be interested in turning to think about what, what can we contribute to discussions about waste and waste management. Good stuff. Well, um, thank you for your time today. Enjoy um, your time in South Africa. I'm sure there's a lot of beautiful and wonderful things there as well as the creaky infrastructure to deal with. And uh, <laughs> Professor Crispin Thurlow, yeah. great to chat to you today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me here.